Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 8 is where we'll begin. And we'll be moving around to different parts of the New Testament in our study this morning. In this part of our worship where we open God's Word and study together from it. It is so good to see you this morning and appreciate so much that we have visitors with us. We want you to feel welcome and we are glad that you are here. Appreciate so much the uh, worship that we have had so far. Especially I want to thank Drew for the work he has done in arranging songs that are going to go with the lesson. Uh, One of the things that I really do love about this congregation is the way that the song leaders really make effort and take thought in the things that they choose for us to sing about. Uh, I know that as a preacher, I know what I'm going to talk about. Not everybody does. But as I sing through these songs, I hear each one echoes what we're going to talk about. And I appreciate that. That doesn't just happen by accident. It happens by deliberate thought. And I appreciate that so much from those men. I want to begin in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 8. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 8. Paul writes, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul wants to motivate the Corinthians in this text to follow through on a gift they're going to give to the needy Christians in Jerusalem. But how does he do it? How do you motivate people to give? He does not issue a command, give or else. If you don't give, it's a sin. He doesn't really jump into advice either, although he's going to talk about advice. He doesn't do what we would do. If you think about how would we motivate someone to give today, we would put some pictures up of people in need. We would say, look at all these needy people, and our heartstrings would be tugged at, and we would say, you know what, let's give to them. Paul doesn't go on and on about the needy Christians in Jerusalem and how bad their need is. Instead, I want you to notice what he does in verse 9. In verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul motivates by taking them back to Jesus. You remember the gospel. And in that one verse, he encapsulates the whole of the gospel story. That though Jesus was rich, for your sake, he became poor. That is, as we sometimes sing, he left the ivory palaces of heaven and entered a world of woe. That he was laid in a manger. That he had no place to lay his head. He became poor for our sakes. For you. And then in verse 9, he also says that you by his poverty might become rich. He became something he was not so that you could become something you were not. And this is the gospel story in a nutshell. And so Paul says, hey, if you're thinking about giving, it might help to remember that you serve a Lord who gave everything up for you. Now, don't you think it's possible for you to give a little for your brother? It's common for people in our time to complain that the message of the Bible is outdated. It's old-fashioned. It's no longer relevant. But I want to show you how what Paul does here proves why the gospel is never stale. Let me take a moment as I've shown you a picture of a loaf of bread and explain why I put a loaf of bread. This was the subject of some discussion in our household as we thought about what would be best to describe not stale And so we came up with bread because bread can be stale, and the gospel is never stale. So the idea here is that the gospel always is fresh and relevant. And I want to show you how the New Testament authors believed that 
and reason from the gospel and applied the gospel in everyday situations. And when I use the word gospel this morning, I want you to know that what I mean is very specific. I mean the story of Jesus coming to earth, living as a man, living a sinless life, offering himself on the cross and rising from the dead. That gospel story, the simple facts of the good news about Jesus is never stale. And here is the issue. Sometimes we believe as Christians that because we know that story, and frankly, most of the world knows that story, that we've sort of mastered it and we're ready to move on to higher level things. And I want to show you how the New Testament writers don't believe that at all. And that most of the time, what we need is not to move past the gospel, but to dig back into it and to apply it in more and more situations. I want us to learn to think the way they thought. I want us to internalize and live the gospel so that when we start to cope with a situation, it becomes an instinct for us to think about Jesus and how that story applies in this situation. I am here to say this morning, That almost every problem, every situation, every teaching has a gospel root and a gospel solution. Almost everything has a gospel root and a gospel solution. And then when we internalize that, we can have gospel solutions for other people. And we will come out of that saying, wow, that story still matters. It is never stale. So the gospel teaches us first to love When we are selfish, that is 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 8, we've already read. It says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So how do we know love is genuine? That's the question of verse 8. And the question is answered by, we know love is genuine when it's measured against what Jesus did for you. Love is only genuine when it is shown and when it is sometimes shown by me lowering myself and giving to you what you don't have on your own and what I do have. Jesus lowered himself and suffered for us. So if I am touched by that, there is no way I can honestly respond to your need with a shrug. Oh, well, I know I serve Jesus, but I don't have to do anything for you. Why would I? So when we are challenged with selfishness, the gospel teaches us, That love is not just something we receive, it's love that we then pass on to other people. John says it this way, 1 John 3, 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So just take a time out and think about what that verse just said. It took the whole of the gospel story. He laid down his life for us. That's the gospel. And he says, well, then we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now we are applying what we've learned in the gospel story. We don't just say, oh, that's great. Thank you, Jesus. We then say, now what do I do? I must learn to love like that. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And the gospel is about love. That's no longer just word and talk. It's something you do. It's something you practice. The really surprising area that this is used in has to do with marriage. I want to show you this in Ephesians chapter 5. Look at Ephesians 5 with me. When Paul wants to talk about marriage, he wants to talk about the gospel. Ephesians chapter 5, let's read beginning in verse 22. This is a familiar text, but I want you as you read it to hear the gospel echoes in it. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, And is himself its savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So we're talking marriage roles here, and Paul says, go back to the gospel. Go back to what Jesus has done. He says in verse 24, as the church submits to Christ. So this is the sort of back end of the gospel, that after Jesus has done all of this for his people, his people respond in obedient faith, and they say, yes, we will follow you. And so they willingly follow and trust him. And so wives willingly follow and trust their husbands. And then in verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Christ loved his people and he gave himself up. That's the gospel. He sacrificed himself for us. He sought to make us pure and holy and without wrinkle or spot or blemish. He did that for us. And that's how husbands love their wives. Now, marriages are plagued by selfishness. We want our husbands and our wives to do what pleases us. We want to be happy. We want to know, what am I getting out of this? Are my needs met? Am I getting what I signed up for? We want to win our arguments. We want to have our way. We want to find our own happiness. But the gospel teaches us something different. It teaches us love. And so when Paul gives marriage advice, he doesn't give marriage advice. What he does is he says, you need more gospel in your marriage. Now, this is striking to me because I am someone who from time to time is asked to do marriage counseling. And I will tell you my instinct in marriage counseling. My instinct is to have the husband and the wife talk. And the more I listen, you know, over time, you kind of get a feel for the situation and you diagnose the situation and then you give advice. That's what marriage counseling is. That is not what Paul does. He says, you need more gospel in your marriage. If there are problems, go back to the gospel and find solutions in the gospel. There is a lesson in that. That we need to trust the power of this story more than our own judgment, our own wisdom, our own impressions. We need to trust the gospel. So the danger is that we think we've mastered that story even when we're not living it whether we're not living that in loving our brothers or not living that in loving our husbands and wives. But Paul says, no, when we're selfish, we have not yet mastered anything. When we're not loving, what we need is more gospel. Second, the gospel teaches us forgiveness when we're hurt. Look in Ephesians 4 and verse 31 with me. Ephesians 4 and verse 31. The text says, let all bitterness... And wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Have you ever been hurt, offended, angered? Silly example. This just happened to me this week. Friday, I guess. I was driving down Cantrell Road here, and somebody 
switched lanes right in front of me, like way too early, and was about that far from my bumper. Do you know how I felt then? You know how I felt, right? I felt angry. And, and in that moment, it's, it's not a forgiving moment. You don't just say, oh, well, he's in a hurry. Good luck. No, you, you want justice. In fact, Sarah makes fun of me because when I pass that person eventually, I, I like to look over at them and kind of glare. She calls it highway justice, which is funny. I, I want, I, I'm, where are the police right now? I need them to settle this problem. Or I want in some way for them to be embarrassed by, by their awful action. Look at what they've done. And they did it to me. This is how we feel when we are hurt. Now, if we're that way about some silly incident on the road, how much more are we that way about things that really hurt us? When people do and say things that stick with us. Well, we just have trouble thinking about them well anymore. Verse 31 there characterizes us. Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. That's how we feel when we are hurt. And the gospel teaches us different. In verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. That little phrase is the gospel. God in Christ forgave you. You have been forgiven. So there's a tension here. And the tension is when we come to Christ and we need forgiveness, we know we are beggars, we are needy, we are convicted, we are wrong. We are in the position of the supplicant. But when we are hurt, it's totally different. When we're hurt, we're not humble and needy. No, we feel anger. We want justice. We want to know, when is God going to punish the person who did that to me? Do you see the difference? So when we're hurt and we react that way, we need more gospel. We don't just need to be told, forgive, forgive, forgive. We need to see what forgiveness we needed and how God in Christ forgave us. That's the message. The gospel is not stale because we get hurt all the time. And we need to learn how to get over it by looking at the cross. Paul says, go back to the gospel. Jesus, in fact, is insistent on this point that we need to look again at what we've been forgiven if we need help forgiving. He tells the parable of the unforgiving servant who has forgiven this astronomical debt and then his fellow servant owes a really small debt and he says, pay me what you owe. And you read that story and you say, that's not fair. How could we possibly accept forgiveness and refuse to give it? That's Jesus' message. He says this, Matthew 6, 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Or, this is Luke 6, 37, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. In other words, God's going to do for you what you do for others. So you can say, well, God has forgiven, so I forgive. Or you could say, God will forgive, so I'm going to forgive. Now, either way you want to frame it, the message is you need the gospel if you need to learn to forgive. When we fail to forgive, we need more gospel, not less. If we're not forgiving, when we're hurt, we're not living the gospel. The gospel teaches us forgiveness when we're hurt. Third, the gospel teaches us purity when we're worldly. Let's go to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1. <clears throat> this is an interesting little wrinkle that I discovered this week. That sometimes 
the gospel is described as saving us from something. In Galatians 1 and verse 3, it says, Grace to you, Galatians 1, 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So it says specifically that he gave himself, verse 4, for our sins. That's the gospel, isn't it? He gave himself, sacrificed himself on the cross for our sins. Yet Paul adds in verse 4, to deliver us from the present evil age. Yes, we are saved from our sins, but guess what? We still live in the present evil age. We are, in Jesus' words, wheat in the midst of weeds. And we now have to live among people that we are no longer like. And there is the ever-present danger that we will be again contaminated by the people that surround us. Jesus wants us to be his own special people. And yet, sometimes we struggle with being worldly instead of being pure. So the question is, how can we keep living worldly if we have really grasped the gospel that Jesus died to deliver you from the world that sometimes you're tempted to go back into. Instead of saying, no, what we need is lots more lessons about worldliness, Paul says what we need is more gospel. Go back to the message that says Jesus died to save you from this. I want to show you an example of how that works in practice in 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. So the problem in 1 Corinthians 6 has to do with sexual immorality. The Corinthians living like the world. And I want to show you how Paul reasons through that. 1 Corinthians 6, we're going to begin in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 6 and 12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now I want you to first notice the gospel language all through this text. In verse 14, And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by His power. So the body then is not to be treated as disposable, because as He says, He raised Jesus' body, and he will raise our body. So don't just abuse your body or use your body in a way inconsistent with the maker's intention. And he says specifically, your body wasn't made for fornication. So that's part of the gospel. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 17, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Then verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have for God? For you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. See, these are all gospel images that someone was given for us, that we have been bought, that we belong to someone, that we are joined with Christ. 
And so he says, you need to understand that when you make decisions about your sexual behavior, they reflect on the gospel you believe. You said, I believe in this message. I know that my body will be raised. I know I'm joined with the Lord. I know I belong to him. So now, how can you go back to the world when you know that? There's a lot more in this text. Paul argues that sexual immorality is usually a bigger commitment than people realize, which, by the way, is still true in our time. It's saying more than you think. It's writing checks you have no intent on cashing. That's all here. But Paul is arguing, what I want to point out, is that the gospel teaches us that God sent his son to save you from this. So how can you go back to it? Let me get a little more specific. When we are battling worldliness and impurity, when it's our friends who are pressuring us to sin, when it's our internet history that shows that our minds and eyes are in the gutter when it's our language that's corrupt, when it's our priorities that are like the world, can we really look Jesus in the eye and say, yes, yes, thank you for all that you did, but I want to do this stuff too. I know you died for all my sins, but I got a few more sins that I really want to get in. You see, what we need is more gospel, not less. What we need is to be taught that we have been saved from these things. There is a place for talking about the specifics of worldliness. But there is also a place that says to motivate us. We don't just need information. We need gospel. We need the gospel to touch our hearts with the fact that God sent his son to die to save us from this. And now we can be pure. So will we throw that purity in the garbage for some worldly desire of the moment? The gospel teaches us humility when we're proud. Look in Philippians chapter 2 with me. Philippians 2. So in the middle of teaching the Philippian church, Paul goes all gospel on them and brings the gospel back into this too. Philippians 2 and verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So his point, verse 3 and 4, is about ambition and selfishness, humility. And he says, you need to think of other people first. And then he says, you know what? You know who was great at that? Jesus. Jesus who was in heaven and had all the privileges and all the power that attends to his status. And he left that all behind, emptied himself, and became a man. And he obeyed all the way to the point of death, to the humiliation of the cross, all the way. And so when we look at Jesus on the cross, we see a man who is God, who is dying He is God, but he is suffering for us. Someone who thought not at all for himself. Nothing about the gospel is about selfish ambition. It's all about humbling and humbling and humbling again. And so then he says, well, God has highly exalted him, verse 9, and has given him the name above every name because that's the pattern. 
he who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus shows us that pattern. Now he says, Paul says, now live like Jesus. Left to our own devices, we tend toward pride. That is, we really want other people to be impressed with us. We want their validation. We want their respect and approval. We want them to think that we're funny and that we're beautiful and that we're really important. And then when they do think that, then we get the big head. And we start thinking about how great we are. Or if they don't, we become desperate for someone who will think that we're that great. And one of the main problems with that, one among many, is that when we're thinking that way, we don't do anything for anyone else. We're all about us. Paul says that's selfish ambition and conceit. And it won't get you any closer to the exaltation God promises. You're seeking your own. Be like Jesus. So we might think that the way you address the pride problem is to get a checklist out or is to preach a bunch of sermons about it. It's some, find some way to attack our pride. Paul says, no, that's not what you need. What you need is more gospel. What you need is to look at Jesus again and again and again to drink in the spirit that says, it's not about me being exalted. It's instead about me humbling myself. And if we can not only learn that, but then practice that, then the gospel can't be stale because we've got work to do by applying that gospel. The gospel also teaches us unity when we are divided. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1. You might be wondering just how far this slide goes down. I have one more point, which makes six, which normally would be two sermons, but I don't think we could do two sermons. So I've got, we're going to talk about unity, and we'll have one more thought after that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united by the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So Paul has gotten bad reports about the church here. They are beginning to divide based on allegiances to men. But notice how he goes back to the gospel. Look again at verse 13. Verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? One of the primary principles is that Christ is not divided and his people are not divided. Jesus said... I will have one flock and one shepherd. Jesus said, I will build my church, singular, my people. Is Christ divided? Well, no. Then he says, was Paul crucified for you? What a question. I mean, it makes you say, well, of course not. But what does it say? It's saying, well, somebody was crucified for you. Who was it? Who has earned your allegiance? It's not me, Paul says. I mean, we may be good friends. I, mean, I may be like a father to you in the gospel, but I wasn't crucified for you. And in verse 13, he says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Boy, I hope not. He says, I'm glad. No, I didn't, glad I didn't even baptize anybody there. So nobody could say I baptized in my name because I'm not the focus. Jesus is the one who died for you. Jesus is the one who deserves your allegiance. Jesus is the one that you are united in following. And he talks about this repeatedly by saying, I want to focus on the gospel of Christ, the cross of Christ, instead of on me. 
He says that in verse 17 of chapter 1, where he talks about preaching the gospel. And if otherwise, the cross will be emptied of its power. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he talks about, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Gospel. Because that's what's going to unite us. I want to show you this in chapter 15. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. There is a problem in chapter 15 about people who are not believing in the resurrection. And so how does Paul treat an issue where we're divided over something like resurrection belief? Well, he says, let's go back to the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. He goes through all the appearances there. But verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how could some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Hope you notice what Paul is doing. He says, all right, everybody, time out. Everybody quiet down. Let's think about this. You guys remember when I first came to Corinth, what did I say? Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised the third day. The gospel. And you guys believed it. I know you did because I taught it to you. When we're divided, Paul says what we need is to go back to what we originally agreed to, the simple facts of the gospel. And if we are united, united or unified about that original message then how can somebody say something different than what we all agreed on? We all agreed to that. So don't leave that and argue something different. Wait a minute, this is not what we all believe. If we're going to be divided, unity comes from going back to the gospel. Now, please, don't misunderstand me. That does not mean that unity is just as simple as we all repeat the simple facts of the gospel and then we'll be agreed about everything. There's a lot more nuance in some of the, the matters of the gospel than just those facts. But it does mean this, that if anything is going to unify us as the people of God, it will have to be the core of faith in Jesus and the things he did while he was here on earth. And one of those things was that he taught that he would have one church and one flock, that we would all belong together and that we would learn to accept each other. In fact, Jesus is the one who when James and John are saying there was somebody else and he doesn't follow us, so we tried to stop him and Jesus blasts them and says, no, no, he who is not against us is for us. Unity, wholeness with other believers is a part of the gospel. So the gospel teaches us when we're divided, we seek unity by saying what we need in matters where we are divided is to go back to who Jesus is, what he did for us and what we and originally agreed that we all believe. And finally, the gospel teaches us mission when we're apathetic. I want you to go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the last passage we'll look at today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Sometimes Christians struggle with apathy. Especially we may feel that because we have been baptized, the pressure is off. You know, we, we are saved, we're right with God. And so now... We just don't have the passion that characterized Christians in the past or that should characterize our work. And this passage is going to show us that when that's the problem, we need more 
gospel. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Everybody clue in on verse 14. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This passage says that there is a logic to understanding the gospel. In verse 14, he says that one has died for all and he died for all so that those who live might not live for themselves. In other words, this is not something where, yes, Jesus died and he died for your sins and now you could just accept it and you can be baptized and you can have forgiveness. The end. Instead, it's the beginning. Now, we don't live for ourselves anymore. And there is more logic to it in verse 18 that God was reconciling the world to himself and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He calls himself an ambassador for Christ. I'm speaking for him to bring people back to him. Paul has a distinct sense of mission. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We are ambassadors for Christ. We don't live for ourselves anymore. How can we look at Jesus? Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. How can we look at him suffering for us and feel apathy? How can we watch a world that God desperately wants to save and see them go further and further away from God and just shrug our shoulders? Oh, well. See, what we need in those moments is not some special new method. You know, let's get a big program in here to get us out there doing mission work. No, what we need is more gospel. We need to see that these are the people that Jesus died to save, just like you and me. We need to see how much he cares about them just like he cares about us. More gospel changes apathy into a sense of mission. Paul writes in Titus 2, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. A new passion, a new zeal that comes because we understand he gave himself for us. The gospel produces that zeal in us. He gave himself for us. How does that make me feel? He gave himself for you. What are you going to do? How are you going to give yourself to his cause? Well, I got six points. I hope you know. We could go on. We have not come close to exhausting the passages 
that would apply the crucifixion and gospel message to different areas of our lives. But I want to reaffirm that we don't grow past the gospel. The gospel is not Christianity 101, and then we get to dive into all the other stuff later, and we kind of, oh yeah, we need to touch base on that. The way the New Testament writers think about it is that there is no issue or situation or teaching that does not have a gospel root or a gospel solution. There's something in there that if we're really learning who Jesus is and what he's done, it will change us and change our approach. We cannot afford for the gospel to become a stale cliche. Oh yeah, I've already mastered that. We need to see it in its vibrant power to change our lives. And then we need to communicate it to other people. That is, we communicate it to the lost, we communicate it to our mates, we teach it to our kids, we show it to our brothers. It becomes who we are. We reflect Jesus. Drew led us in a song. It said, When my love to Christ grows weak, when for deeper faith I seek, then in thought I go to thee, Garden of Gethsemane. What gives us that love again, that passion? Going back to the garden. When my love for man grows weak, hill of Calvary I go, where Jesus hangs on a cross, and I behold his agony. When I start feeling indifferent towards you and selfish again, what do I need? I don't just need to be rebuked. I need to be shown again the gospel. And so I urge you to make the gospel a part of your thinking and living. Can you imagine how many conflicts would be resolved? How many worldly decisions would be changed? How much positivity and encouragement could be given if we really took the gospel in and started to act like Jesus? That is something that is a great source of encouragement to me just to think about. So we need to have faith in that gospel, especially that it is transformative. But the gospel is never stale. There might be someone here this morning who is ready to respond to the invitation Jesus offers on the basis of his sacrifice. He loves you enough to give his life for you, to free you from sin, to make you into the person he created you to be. And we stand ready to help you to do that. If you've never been baptized into Christ and you're ready to put your faith in him and have your sins washed away, or if there is any need that you have, we invite you to come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.